This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and self-harm that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Joseph Slattery stepped out into the backyard of his Long Island home in Oyster Bay. He dragged a lawn chair across his deck until he found a warm patch of sun. Spring had finally arrived and the weather was perfect for lounging in the backyard and enjoying the view of the bay. Joseph felt himself beginning to doze when a loud popping sound startled him awake. He was on his feet within seconds. As a retired police officer, Joseph immediately identified the noise. It was a gunshot. He rounded the house and darted into the front yard His heart pounded as he searched up and down the quiet block. It wasn't long before he spotted a figure slumped on the front stoop of the house across the street. Joseph drew in a breath. For a moment, he was paralyzed with shock. Things like this just didn't happen in his peaceful seaside neighborhood. But as he watched blood pooling on the concrete, Joseph forced himself to move. He turned and shouted for his wife to call 911. Someone had been shot at the Buttafugo's house. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is the second of three episodes on the relationship between 35-year-old Joey Buttafuoco and 17-year-old Amy Fisher. Last week, we saw how the relationship developed between auto repairman Joey Buttafuoco and one of his customers, then 16-year-old Amy Fisher. They met in late 1990 and began sleeping together a few months later. For a year and a half, Joey and Amy managed to keep their relationship a secret from his wife, Mary Jo. This week, we'll discuss the violent end to Joey and Amy's relationship, the legal repercussions, and the sensationalized media response. Next week, we'll see how the case spiraled into a media frenzy that consumed the lives of everyone involved. In the spring of 1992, 17-year-old Amy Fisher was a senior in high school, getting ready to graduate. But her life was more complicated than most of her classmates. Instead of figuring out what college she might attend in the fall, Amy was employed as a sex worker with a local escort business, ABBA Escorts. She was also carrying on a romantic relationship with her gym trainer, 29-year-old Paul Makeley, while still sleeping with her ex-boyfriend, 36-year-old Joey Buttafuoco. Amy was completely torn between the two men. Even though Joey had no plans to leave his wife, 37-year-old Mary Jo, she couldn't let go of the idea that she and Joey were meant to be together. And she wasn't private about those feelings. That March, Joey gave Amy a promotional golf shirt from his auto body shop. The gift may have been an afterthought to Joey, but Amy treasured it. She often wore the shirt to school, bragging to her friends that her boyfriend had given it to her. Even men who hired Amy for her escort services noticed her fixation on Joey Buttafuoco. One of her clients, 29-year-old Peter DeRosa, sometimes recorded his sexual liaisons with Amy. In one of these tapes, she opened up to DeRosa about being involved with an older married man with children. She confessed that despite every obstacle, Amy didn't want to let Joey go. Instead of dissuading Amy's obsession, Joey seemed to encourage it. According to her, Joey complained about his wife constantly. He hated Mary Jo and he wanted to get rid of her. He implied that he couldn't divorce his wife, but he might shoot her someday. Unless Amy did it first. He allegedly told her, a marriage is till death do us part. You just have to speed up the last part. Joey later denied that he ever encouraged Amy to commit murder. But regardless of where the idea came from, the thought of killing Mary Jo was constantly on Amy's mind in the spring of 1992. 
One night in mid-May, 17-year-old Amy was hanging out with a few of her high school friends in Brooklyn. While strolling around a street festival, she met 21-year-old Peter Guagenti. They struck up a conversation. As Amy flirted with Peter, she hinted that she might be interested in meeting up sometime to have sex, but she wanted him to do her a favor first. She asked him to help her find a gun. Peter Guagenti was an honor roll student on track to attend medical school, but he came from a rough neighborhood and many of his peers belonged to gangs. He knew it would be easy enough to find a gun and he was tempted by Amy's offer of a sexual quid pro quo. Before I continue with Peter's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Peter's willingness to jeopardize his entire future for one sexual experience might seem illogical, but evolutionary psychologists Satoshi Kanazawa and Mary C. Still theorize that young men's tendency to commit crimes is frequently driven by the desire to attract women. They use this theory to explain why male criminality peaks in late adolescence and early adulthood when the libido is strongest. Excited by Amy's offer of sex, Peter Guagenti quickly agreed to the deal. A few days later, on Tuesday, May 19th, he called Amy at home. He had her gun, a semi-automatic 25 caliber Titan. Amy told him to come over and drop it off at 11 a.m. After she hung up, Amy drove to Oyster Bay to scout out the Buttafugo's house. She spotted Mary Jo's car in the driveway. Her lover's wife must be home. Perhaps to give herself an alibi, Amy then drove to school. But instead of heading to class, she immediately checked in at the nurse's office, complaining that she was sick. The nurse called Amy's mother, who gave her permission to go home for the day. By the time Amy arrived at her house, Peter Guagenti was waiting for her. She climbed into his maroon Thunderbird and handed him $800. In turn, Peter gave her the 25 caliber Titan. Amy admired it for a moment. Then, she asked Peter to give her a ride. She directed him back to the Buttafuoco's house on Adam Road West. Along the way, Amy tried to talk Peter into shooting Mary Jo, as she had done previously with her friend, Stephen Sleeman. Amy thought she could goad Peter into doing the job for her, but he refused. He was happy to give her a gun and a ride, but he drew the line at murdering a stranger. Whatever she planned to do once they got to Adam Road West, he was staying in the car. Despite Peter's refusal, Amy told him to keep driving. She was determined to confront Mary Jo with or without him. Peter pulled up to the Buttafuoco's house at 11.30 a.m. Amy got out of the car, walked up the path to the front door, and rang the doorbell. Mary Jo was painting lawn chairs on her back deck when she heard the ring. She was alone. Her children, 12-year-old Paul and 9-year-old Jessica, were at school. When she answered the door and found Amy there, 
she didn't recognize the girl. It didn't occur to Mary Jo to be suspicious of the petite teenage girl in front of her. Amy asked, Is Joey your husband? Mary Jo said yes, thinking perhaps the girl was looking for an estimate on car repairs. But Amy took a deep breath and said, I came here to tell you that Joey is having an affair with my little sister. Instead of reacting with shock, Mary Jo seemed amused. Was this some kind of prank? But Amy's face remained serious. She rattled off a wild story, claiming to be a 19-year-old named Anne Marie. Her little sister, she said, was only 16. The more Amy talked, the more skeptical Mary Jo became. The girl seemed nervous and evasive. She could tell that Amy was lying and started to get impatient. Whatever joke this teenager was playing, she didn't understand it and she was ready for the conversation to be over. In a last-ditch effort to convince Mary Jo of the truth, Amy pulled out the white golf shirt from Joey's auto body shop. She told Mary Jo that she had found it in her sister's bed. It was proof that he had been in her house. Mary Jo waved the evidence away. Joey gave out a lot of shirts. It didn't prove anything. Amy was thrown off by Mary Jo's casual response. Why wasn't she taking her seriously? According to professor of psychology, Nathaniel R. Hare, people who have trouble regulating their emotions are particularly prone to aggression and feelings of invalidation may be a trigger for aggressive behavior. Invalidation occurs when a person's thoughts and feelings are rejected or ignored. When Mary Jo shrugged off Amy's accusation, Amy became furious. Amy felt her face heat up. She had expected tears or anger, some kind of reaction. But this woman wouldn't even give her the satisfaction of getting upset. It was like Mary Jo didn't care at all. Amy felt dismissed, ignored, this woman was treating her like some stupid kid. When Mary Jo stepped back and thanked Amy for stopping by, Amy thought she sounded almost smug. It made her furious. Joey was right about Mary Jo. No wonder he couldn't wait to be rid of her. He deserved better. Amy thought about everything she had shared with Joey, the love and the tenderness, she thought about how this woman in front of her was the only thing keeping Joey away from her. Her hands trembled with rage, but she steadied them. As Mary Jo turned away from the door, Amy reached for the gun stuffed into the pocket of her jeans. As Mary Jo turned her back on Amy, the teenager raised the gun and fired. Mary Jo collapsed to the ground, bleeding. Amy began to panic. She broke the ejector off the gun, threw the gun's pieces into the front yard, and fled back to Peter's car. But when Peter saw Amy come back empty-handed, he ordered her to go and retrieve the gun. They couldn't leave that much evidence behind. Then they drove off, leaving Mary Jo unconscious on her stoop. 
Mary Jo's neighbor, Joseph Slattery, had heard the gunshot from his back deck. He rushed over just after Peter Guagenti's maroon Thunderbird sped away. Joseph raced over to Mary Jo's body. He felt for a pulse and found one. It was faint, but Mary Jo was still alive. He shouted to his wife, call 911. As he looked for the source of the bleeding, he discovered a bullet wound in her skull. As they waited for the ambulance, the Slatteries also phoned Joey at the auto body shop to tell him what happened. Joey arrived just moments after a police helicopter touched down on the nearby beach. Paramedics rushed Mary Jo on board, strapped to a stretcher. Joey was too late to join her. He could only watch in shock as the helicopter lifted away with Mary Jo inside. When we return, Mary Jo fights for her life as investigators search for answers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On May 19, 1992, 17-year-old Amy Fisher shot 37-year-old Mary Jo Buttafuoco in the side of her head. Mary Jo was rushed to the hospital for evaluation and quickly taken into surgery. As her family gathered in the hospital waiting room, they asked again and again, who could have done this? Her husband, Joey, kept repeating that he didn't know, but he must have had his suspicions. While Mary Jo fought for her life, Peter Guagenti hurried to take Amy Fisher home, stopping to toss the gun down a storm drain near Amy's house. Then he returned to Brooklyn. Once Amy got to her bedroom, she got rid of her bloody clothing. The gravity of what she'd done started to sink in. She later said she wasn't even thinking about the police. She was terrified of what her parents would say when they realized what she had done. She hurried to leave the house, hoping to construct an alibi. She drove to a salon where her friend worked as a hairstylist. Then she went to Nassau Community College and registered for fall classes. But she couldn't get the shooting out of her head. She prayed that somehow the whole situation might go away. Later that day, she watched the news and saw that Mary Jo had been taken to the hospital. She said she was relieved that Mary Jo had survived. She thought perhaps that meant she would avoid getting in trouble. As Amy grappled with her crime, Mary Jo endured seven hours of surgery. Doctors were unable to remove the bullet. They could only try to repair the damage it had caused. She suffered a stroke during the operation and remained in critical condition. Her doctors weren't sure if she would ever wake up. But at 3 a.m. on May 20th, the injured woman 
regained consciousness. Mary Jo woke up to find a nurse by her side. She couldn't talk. A breathing tube had been placed down her throat. The nurse brought her a pen and a legal pad. Joey hurried in to see her. He asked, who did this to you? Mary Jo scrawled the answer on the pad. She said that a 19-year-old girl had shot her. The following evening, police arrived to take Mary Jo's statement. She described the slight brunette girl she'd seen on her front stoop. According to police reports, when Joey Buttafuoco heard Mary Jo's statement, he broke down and confessed his affair with Amy Fisher. When the police showed Mary Jo a photograph of Amy, she immediately recognized the teenager as the shooter. But Joey later said he never confessed to having sex with Amy. He claimed that he recognized Mary Jo's description as one of his clients at the auto body shop and that police jumped to conclusions about the nature of their relationship. In any case, police now had a suspect for Mary Jo's attempted murder. While the police investigated, Amy tried to pretend everything was normal. After she stopped by the salon and registered for college classes, she didn't want to go home and face her parents. So she went to see her boyfriend, Paul Makeley, at his gym. Paul noticed that she looked upset. When he asked her what was wrong, she said she had an upset stomach. When Paul heard about the shooting, he was suspicious for a moment but quickly dismissed these thoughts. He just couldn't imagine that Amy was capable of murder. The following day, May 21st, police instructed Joey to call Amy. They hoped to draw her out of the house to make it easier to arrest her. Joey agreed to cooperate. When Amy got this call, she didn't realize that Mary Jo was already awake and communicating with the police. She didn't confess to Joey that she had tried to kill his wife. All she said was, it's just terrible what happened. Everyone I know is saying the mafia did it. Joey didn't let on that Amy was already a suspect. He asked her to come see him. She initially refused, but shortly after the call, she told her parents that she was going jogging and then headed down the street where Joey promised to meet her. She left the house just before 7 p.m. on May 21st, 1992. Within a few minutes, police pulled her over and arrested her. At police headquarters, Amy insisted that the shooting was accidental. She'd only tried to hit Mary Jo in the head with the butt of the gun but it malfunctioned and went off in her hands. After the interrogation, Amy was arrested for attempted murder, assault, and criminal possession of a gun. When word spread of the arrest, reporters were immediately intrigued by Amy Fisher's story. When Amy was brought to the district court, Journalists and cameras surrounded the courthouse to watch as she was led inside for arraignment. Newscasters eagerly reported on the seedy fatal attraction story, giving Amy Fisher the infamous nickname, the Long Island Lolita. After an arraignment hearing, 
the judge ordered that Amy be held without bail. Once she was taken to Nassau Correctional Facility, she placed a phone call to her boyfriend, Paul Makeley, telling him she'd screwed up. She cried on the phone saying, Paul, if I have to stay here, I'll kill myself. Amy was desperate to get out of jail and her parents were equally anxious to see her released. Shortly after the arraignment, they hired a prominent defense attorney, Eric Nyberg. Nyberg was well-versed in media strategy. He urged Amy's parents to grant an interview to Newsday in hopes of garnering sympathy for his client. But his attempts to control the narrative were soon overshadowed by more scandal. A few days after Amy's arrest, one of her clients from ABBA Escort Services recognized her image on television, 29-year-old Paul DeRosa. He not only remembered Amy, he had recent recordings of the two of them having sex. Hoping to cash in on his connection to the attempted murder suspect, DeRosa called the Fox Network's tabloid program A Current Affair and offered to sell the tapes. The show agreed to purchase the recordings for $8,000, worth over $14,000 today. Before airing the tapes, the show sent word to various tabloids promoting the upcoming broadcast. News of Amy Fisher's history of sex work dominated the headlines. It only intensified the Lolita comparisons. In the wake of these revelations about Amy's past, reporters quickly assembled to gather as much information as they could. They swarmed Amy's high school, camped out in front of Amy's parents' house, and hounded Peter DeRosa until he fled his home. But the more reporters dug into Amy Fisher's sex life, the more they began to ask questions about her relationship with Joey Buttafuoco. In the weeks following Amy's arrest, Joey spent much of his time at the hospital by his wife's bedside. Mary Jo had a long physical recovery ahead of her. The bullet had paralyzed part of her face and esophagus. Her eardrum had been shattered, causing hearing loss, throwing off her balance and making it impossible to walk. She also suffered from debilitating headaches. In this vulnerable state, she watched countless media reports describing Joey's affair with Amy. According to the Mayo Clinic, individuals often resort to denial as a defense mechanism to help cope with stress and trauma. After everything she had faced, Mary Jo couldn't confront the thought of her husband's long-term infidelity. No matter what was reported, Joey fervently denied his relationship with Amy and Mary Jo chose to believe him. After remaining at the hospital for nearly two weeks, Mary Jo was cleared to be discharged. It was a relief at first, but the Buttafugos were swarmed by reporters and cameras almost immediately. The media couldn't get enough of the love triangle that had almost turned deadly. For Mary Jo and the children, it was a daily torment. But Joey, ever the glad-handed, seemed to enjoy the extra attention. Early that summer, Joey turned on the radio to listen to the Howard Stern show. He realized they were talking about his relationship with Amy Fisher. Eager to contribute, 
Joey called into the show and chatted with the hosts. He swore that he had never been unfaithful to his wife, but the optics of Joey joking around with a radio shock jock while his wife struggled to recover from a near-fatal injury were not positive. A police detective later called Joey to lecture him, saying, Everybody hates you, and now they're really going to hate you. Joey's negative public image wasn't his only problem. He also faced the looming threat of legal problems. In New York State, the age of consent is 17. According to Amy, she and Joey began having sex while she was still 16. Amy's lawyer, Eric Nyberg, repeatedly advocated for Joey to be prosecuted for statutory rape, but police were hesitant to make an arrest. One detective reportedly said, Come on, do you know what would happen if we locked up every guy who made love to a 16-year-old? The district attorney was also reluctant to go after Joey. He wasn't sure whether he had enough evidence to secure a conviction, and he didn't want Joey's case to muddy his attempted murder case against Amy Fisher. On June 2, 1992, reporters again met at the courthouse to witness Amy Fisher's bail hearing. Her attorney, Eric Nyberg, pled with the judge to allow Amy to be released on a $50,000 bond. He argued that she would be surrounded by parents and family who could be trusted to keep her home and out of trouble. The judge was not moved by these arguments. He set Amy's bail at $2 million, setting a record for the highest amount in the history of Nassau County. According to criminal justice researchers, K.B. Turner and James B. Johnson, women in the criminal justice system often receive more lenient treatment than men when it comes to a judge's incarceration decisions. White women in particular are more likely to receive lower bail amounts, but the researchers noted an exception to this trend. Women who violated traditional gender roles often received harsher penalties than others. Turner and Johnson wrote that women who deviate from gender expectations by acting violent or aggressive may not receive the benefit of chivalrous treatment and, in fact, may be treated more harshly than males. With no way to produce this huge amount of money, Amy Fisher was returned to custody. Amy felt numb. As the officers led her out of the courtroom, she was aware that they were taking her back to jail, but her mind wouldn't process it. Her lawyer had assured her that she'd get out. He promised that she'd be home soon, sleeping in her own bed. She had trusted him. Now, she realized that he was going to disappoint her, like everyone else. She thought about the bare jail cell waiting for her, the bland food, the rodents, the loneliness. She blinked back the tears that sprang to her eyes. But as she stepped outside the courtroom and faced the onslaught of reporters, her sorrow twisted into an indignant anger. She hated them. She hated everyone. It didn't seem fair. She wasn't the only one who had made a mistake, but she was the only one punished and ridiculed. Nobody seemed to understand her, and it left her feeling bewildered and enraged. 
While Amy Fisher may have felt unfairly persecuted, she wasn't the only one to face consequences for the crime. A week after her bail hearing, police arrested 21-year-old Peter Guagenti and charged him with criminal possession of a weapon, criminal sale of a weapon, and hindering prosecution. At the same time, two other young men from Amy's past were growing nervous. The previous fall, Amy had approached a former classmate, Chris Strellos, about whether he could get her a gun. When he failed to find her a weapon, she asked Chris's friend, Stephen Sleeman, to help her shoot Mary Jo Buttafuoco. The young men remained quiet about their involvement with Amy at first, but as media reports ramped up, they feared being implicated in her case. In June of 1992, both Chris and Stephen contacted the district attorney's office and agreed to speak to authorities in exchange for immunity. With their statements, police now had evidence that Mary Jo's shooting was certainly premeditated, not an accident. Amy waited in jail, hoping to go home. She had no idea that investigators were busy cementing their case against her. When we return, Amy and her lawyers try to change a narrative that was quickly spinning out of control. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1992, 17-year-old Amy Fisher was charged with the attempted murder of 37-year-old Mary Jo Buttafuoco and held in custody at the Nassau County Jail on a $2 million bail. Mary Jo showed encouraging signs of recovery from the gunshot wound to her skull, but the process was slow and difficult. She relied heavily on 36-year-old Joey Buttafuoco to take care of her. Joey handled all household duties, drove her to doctor's appointments and physical therapy, and made sure the children were taken care of. Mary Jo was grateful for his support. Even as the media slammed him for seducing a teenage girl, Mary Jo refused to accept the insinuation swirling around her. In one interview, she lamented the sensationalized reporting on the case, saying, I'm standing behind Joey. We're together now more than ever because of all that has happened. My Joey, the things that they're saying about him are terrible. What has happened has made me furious. The news reports about her marriage only compounded Mary Jo's other stresses. She was terrified that on any given day, Amy might make bail and go free. Mary Jo often expressed fears that Amy would come after her again, saying, she's going to kill me. She's going to finish me off. Given Amy's astronomical bail amount, her release seemed almost impossible. But her lawyer, Eric Nyberg, was working hard to get his client out of jail. He was worried about Amy's health and safety while she was in custody. She'd lost 20 pounds already and spent most days sobbing in her cell. A few days after the bail hearing, Nyberg tried to appeal the decision and reduce the amount. When it was denied, he changed course. They just have to raise the two million. Amy's parents put up their house as collateral to secure a loan for a portion of the bail. 
They also sold the furniture upholstery store they had owned for 19 years. For the rest of the money, Nyberg appealed to the media. At that point, production companies had already approached the Buttafucos to buy the movie rights to their story. Joey and Mary Jo had reportedly worked out a six-figure deal with a television network to make a movie about the attempted murder. Nyberg noticed the intense public interest in the case, and he didn't want his client to miss out on a potentially lucrative opportunity. He told the public that Amy was also willing to share her story with anyone who would put up the money for her bail. A Long Island production company, KLM Productions, purchased exclusive rights to Amy's story. The cash from this deal was enough to help Amy's family pay her remaining bail amount. On July 28, 1992, Amy Fisher was released under the strict condition that she stay away from Joey and Mary Jo Buttafuoco. Despite assurances that she would be protected, Mary Jo was aghast when she heard that Amy's lawyer took the Fishers out for a fancy Italian dinner to celebrate the release. She bitterly pointed to her throat and said, I can't have a fine Italian meal. My esophagus is paralyzed. I'm living on baby food. So tell her to have a bite for me. Amy returned home in time to celebrate her 18th birthday in August of 1992. She later said that everyone at the time, including her, was in denial. Her release was only temporary as she awaited her trial. But she felt that her attorney had finally come through for her and she felt confident that he'd be able to keep her out of prison long-term. In late September of 1992, Amy's lawyers urged her to accept a plea bargain for a lesser sentence. If she pled guilty to reckless assault, it carried a possible five to 15 year sentence, rather than the potential 25 year sentence of her attempted murder charge. Amy's lawyer assured her that she would be up for parole and likely released in three years. The night before she entered her plea, Amy snuck out of the house to visit her boyfriend, Paul Makeley, at his gym. She talked about all the things she wanted to do before going to prison. She hoped to visit the Hamptons, ride dirt bikes, go water skiing. She wondered if she could make enough money selling her movie rights to buy a Ferrari. She said that after all the suffering she'd been through, she deserved one. She also asked Paul if he wanted to marry her. She said that if they were husband and wife, they could have conjugal visits while she was in prison. Amy didn't realize that a hidden camera was recording the entire conversation. Anticipating that Amy might seek Paul out, reporters for the television tabloid program Hard Copy had recently paid Paul a visit. They convinced him to hide a camera in his gym for a fee of over $10,000, or about $18,300 today. On September 23, 1992, 18-year-old Amy went to court to enter her guilty plea. The judge accepted the plea and ordered her to return in six weeks for sentencing. But that very afternoon, news broke of the Paul tapes. 
Before the tape's release, some of the public opinion had been sympathetic towards Amy. Many people saw her as a victim of Joey Buttafuoco's manipulation. One man who trained at Paul's gym said, she looked like a little kid, no makeup, very plain, quiet. No one's condoning what she did, that's wrong. But everybody thinks there were greater forces at work than she could handle. The tape evaporated all sympathy. The public was less inclined to feel bad for Amy after she was caught speculating about how much money she could make from her newfound fame. The tape wasn't just bad for her reputation, it rattled Amy to her core. She later said, when the segment ran on TV, it was exactly the moment when I realized I could not trust anybody. People were deceiving me left and right. They couldn't wait to make money off me. Amy thought that she and Paul were close. She was devastated to learn that he had betrayed her. Amy lay quietly in the darkness of her bedroom. She couldn't see a way out. Nobody could help her. Everyone wanted to destroy her. All she wanted was for someone to show her a shred of sympathy. She wanted someone to acknowledge her hurt, but nobody cared. The people she loved the most always seemed to turn against her. First Joey and then Paul. Even complete strangers wanted to hurt her. She felt hopeless. The walls were closing in on her and there was nothing she could do to change it. She couldn't even muster up any anger anymore. Every emotion she had was replaced by a hollow emptiness. Her heart and body ached constantly. She was tired of it. The thought of facing another day, another round of scrutiny, exhausted her. And she just wanted it all to be over. On Friday, September 25th, 1992, 18-year-old Amy Fisher attempted suicide and was hospitalized for several weeks. Following her suicide attempt, she received more bad news. The DA's office had been vacillating for weeks about whether to charge Joey Buttafuoco with statutory rape. After Amy's hospitalization, they decided not to prosecute. The DA felt that Amy Fisher was not a credible enough witness to testify against Joey in front of a grand jury. After her hospital stay, Amy returned to court for sentencing. The judge was not sympathetic. He compared Amy to a wild animal that stalks its prey, motivated by lust and passion. He sentenced her to up to 15 years. In mid-December of 1992, she was transferred to Albion Correctional Facility in upstate New York. For the first time in weeks, she traveled without being surrounded by the press. It was only because reporters weren't told which day she was leaving. Amy later said this was a relief. She was tired of the attention. Most of the Long Island community seemed to feel the same way. Neighbors of both the Buttafugos and the Fishers had had enough of the relentless press coverage.
Even though more than six months had passed since news of the shooting and Amy's arrest made national news headlines, the media was reluctant to turn the spotlight away from the lurid story. The year was drawing to a close, but the final days of 1992 only marked the beginning of the public spectacle that would soon engulf Amy Fisher, Mary Jo, and Joey Buttafugo. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part three of Amy Fisher and the Buttafuoco story. We'll discuss how the trio celebrity status changed each of their lives forever. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now, Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>